street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Right to Reason podcast is brought to you by nobody, which is why I need you to subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. All right, it's time to take this message to the streets with the street epistemologist Anthony Magda Bosco straight out of Compton. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. And that's just the way it is, people. The street epistemologist, up next. Anthony, happy to have you here, sir. It is so good to be back. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. All right. So just in case, speaking of him being back, if anyone isn't familiar with the last episode that he was on or isn't already familiar with his work, I'm going to give you a quick idea of what street epistemology is. Uh, From his website, it says, Street epistemology is a dialectical approach intent on helping people reflect on the reliability of the methods used to arrive at deeply held beliefs. Street epistemology is the application of epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, my listeners know that word, outside of formal academic context. It is a method of an approach for having meaningful, civil, non-confrontational, respectful, and productive conversations that are oriented toward aligning our beliefs with reality. Anthony, would, yeah, <laughs> it really is. So, Anthony, I was hoping to go over a couple audio clips from your YouTube channel today. But before that, uh, I understand you're doing like workshops and, and classes on the sort of thing now. Yes, we are. I think we've done about five classes and workshops, we're calling them, where we give a quick little introduction as far as what street epistemology is. I show an example and then we spend the rest of the session doing role play where one person will pretend to be the the, the individual with a claim, the other person will be the street epistemologist. We uh, we role play for five minutes and then we switch roles. And we've done this in Atlanta at Dragon Con. Uh, I did it in, at the uh, a Skeptics group in Denver. And then most recently, it's going on about a month now, I was in Manchester, England at QED Con. And we had people lined up trying to get into this workshop and we had to turn people away because wow. when we're doing the role play, it gets so noisy that uh, we had to cap the number for the second session. So there's a there's a genuine interest in this, and it was really exciting to see a room full of people practicing this method. That is so cool. Yeah. So do they whenever they do the role play part, is, is it like cards that the the people have to read through or something, and then you have to respond to whatever's on the card kind of thing? Or what we decided to do, we we've, we've been fine tuning this ever since we started. So initially we gave people a scenario to role play. But then we realized that people have the, their own beliefs that they can role play or they have a spouse who they're intending to have a conversation with so they can pretend to be their spouse with this belief or they have a friend or this was a belief that they used to have. And uh, it's just so much easier for people to pick a belief that they're familiar with to role play as opposed to trying to uh, go with something that was told to them. Speaking of spouse, like since getting getting really good at this this se stuff have you noticed that whenever you have conversations with the wife that you start using it (laughs) it's not just with my spouse honestly it's with with everybody (laughs) everybody the person at the store i i I do it with myself too like i i find myself asking questions and being more skeptical and 
and being charitable when somebody makes a claim because they might be right, but how do they know that they're right? So this thing has invaded my my whole worldview, quite yeah, honestly. I, what I find interesting is I'll be having like even even a, a, a simple conversation like who's going to do dishes or something, and I'll start in like like what percentage would you say that you're confident that you actually have you were the last one to do the dishes <laughs> there you go. and the wife would just kind of like get her head cocked you know because she she knows my fascination with with everything that you're doing the street epistemology all of it and anybody that's that's listening that isn't familiar i'd really encourage you guys to check it out and say you're gonna get sucked in just like anthony's talking about but anyway i'll be talking to her and she'll just kind of give me the face like i know what you're doing robert stop it you're doing the damn dishes <laughs> <laughs> my goal really is to get to the point where the people around me they're so used to me doing it that they pick it up and they just want to do it themselves. So before they even ask me a question, they may have already gone through the scenario of what that might play out if if I were to be engaging with them. I, that, that's a big part of SE is that uh, is, is to try to impart these tools to people so that they use them on their own. I was wanting to talk about a clip that you titled Weighing the Soul. And you're talking to this young lady about whether souls exist. What she brings up and the reason that she believes souls exist is something that I run into all the time. I guess I should I should just play it and then talk about my problem with this argument in particular and why I loved your response. Sounds good. How do you know that you actually have a soul? I, I don't. Um, well, I don't personally know for sure if I have a soul or not. But um, through my beliefs in Eastern philosophy, um, the soul is kind of it's kind of labeled as uh, energy source, but with consciousness. Okay. And um, and the, and this soul is supposed to weigh seven pounds. This thing that gives us consciousness that governs our decisions. And that has been proven by a scientist who had a sick friend who was on their deathbed and he asked to have their bed on a scale before they died. I think this was in Germany. This person died and the scale went up seven pounds immediately. Mm. Yeah. So that was one study that kind of intrigued me on like the gravitational force of actually having a soul, like what that what that might entail. Can we talk about a little bit about that? That that soul. Uh, that's really interesting. <laughs> Do you think eight-pound babies have seven-pound souls? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, perhaps. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, hmm. Okay, so right away, um, that that answer is so much better than what I usually give because I always go not just with the soul thing, of course, but I mean with with. Most anything that I know immediately when they say it, I'm like, oh, that's been that's been proven wrong. And that's what I say, because that's just my mm -hmm. honest response. That's been proven wrong. You can Google it. And I never get a good response from that. Providing somebody with uh, another study that shows that that was debunked or a link to Snopes is more than likely. Now, there are some people that would see that and be like, oh, OK, that was kind of a foolish thing to believe. But if you notice, she had a certain arrogant certainty to what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And presenting somebody with facts when they're so certain that they're right usually will result in what's called the backfire effect, which seems to be this phenomena where people will double down and ignore. They'll double down on what they believe and ignore what you're telling them to maintain the belief. So, yeah, trying to respond with a question seems to be one of the best ways to circumvent the defensive mechanisms that somebody might surface when they are encountering something that is telling them that they're mistaken. It's like Socratic plus, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, 
I could have gone a little bit like this. This clip in itself is uh, it's kind of like a little bit of a jab at her. But I think I could have been less charitable with my question, too. I could have said, do six pound babies have seven pound souls? Like I specifically chose a number to give her a little bit of breathing room in her response. So I wasn't just totally stomping on her because I don't I don't want to make her feel stupid. I want her to think about it. And she you can hear it there and you can watch it on the channel, too. She thinks about it. She Mm -hmm. is thinking about it and say, hmm, yeah, that's a good question. I never thought of that either. Just as, as many times as I, I mean, that that study has been reused again and again and again, and I'm so tired of hearing it, but at no point have I ever catched up at the baby. I never even thought to. <laughs> <laughs> Unless maybe the soul grows over time, but then it well, I mean, she very well, well could have said, "Well, no, it's it's proportional to the weight of the body. It's about you know, it's about it's an eight percent of of your total body mass." But no, she she hadn't thought it through, and that's the beauty of these questions is that. It, uh, it it hopefully encourages the person to think about what they believe, how they can be so sure, and discard the belief or lower their confidence in something that they may have been certain about minutes before. Was the Denzel one? Was that one where you guys actually got to get into percentages? Yeah, I'm not. It's been a while since I've listened to this one. What stands out more about this one was that he he has a very strong position on something, and as it turns out, it's. Well, maybe we should just play it. But <laughs> okay. yeah, it's it's pretty interesting how the topic that I thought we would be discussing would have been a complete waste of time if we had embarked on it. It's just the, the uh, scientific evidence proves it's just like any kind of drug, you know. Like oh. the, the first time you watch it. Do you value scientific evidence? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if definitely. Denzel, if we can provide you, if I can provide you, or somebody that follows us closely. Yeah. If I discovered some scientific evidence that showed that everything that you've just described very eloquently. <laughs> Hold on, i got to stop it right there. You know, I think I should set this up because we're talking about porn. <laughs> yeah, I just saw his shirt. He's, yeah. Guys, he's wearing this shirt that says uh, porn. Wait, what does it say here? It says, porn kills love. Porn kills love. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Denzel is walking around on a university campus. I'm doing these interviews. Oh, perfect. He's got this bright red shirt, uh, and it says porn kills love on it. So we start, I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting non-religious topic that we can talk about. But as you'll find out, by asking a, a very direct question, we end up saving a lot of time. But this is hilarious. This one's awesome. Yeah, he's walking around with a shirt that says porn kills love. And rather than embark on this big, long dialogue about pornography, <laughs> I want to see why he actually think that thinks that it's harmful. Porn and kills I ask love. him a really good question, and it helps redirect the conversation in the right direction i think it's just the, the uh, scientific evidence proves it's just like any kind of drug you know like oh. the first time you watch it do you value scientific evidence yeah yeah definitely yeah, if definitely. denzel if we can provide you if i can provide you or somebody that follows us closely yeah if i discovered some scientific evidence that showed that everything that you've just described very eloquently it doesn't work in that way They've interviewed 10,000 porn stars and 100,000 men and women, and the overall result suggests that it's a positive. All right? People feel better about themselves. They're living longer. Marriages are actually prospering. Crime is going down, like across the board. And I don't even know if that could even be measured, but if it could, if there was a, a reliable study that showed something completely different than what you're outlining just now. 
Would you change your mind on it? Uh, no, I wouldn't, because at the end of the day, I do value, I do value like you know scientific evidence, historical evidence, and that and that kind of stuff. But at the end, at the heart of it, like I'm a Christian, so I live like by a set of principles. Wow. Yeah. I'm a Christian, so, so I live by a set of principles. So him walking around with a shirt saying "Porn kills love." Even if he discovered evidence to show that pornography was not harmful, he would still hold his view that it was because of his religious perspectives. So I love this example because it shows how we saved so much time. We could have argued about pornography and I could have showed him how here's some studies that show that it's beneficial. He wouldn't be open to changing his mind. There's a deeper belief propping up his position on this view. Even if it's something that you feel confident that you could show, you know, A, B or C with, you don't necessarily argue A, B or C. You present A, B or C in a hypothetical. That way you're avoiding the argument stage altogether. You just skip right past the arguing. Like in this scenario, is porn beneficial or not? Well, let's not even talk about that. But let's just talk about if I could show that it wasn't. Let's talk about you. It's such a time saver. It's Ooh. such a time saver. For, it, it saves my time and his, and we can really focus on why he's holding that position. As Now, sometimes people come back and say, you know what? Yeah, uh, if I were to see a, a study and it's, it, it was uh, you know reliable, um, I probably would change my view on pornography. And then you can start asking questions to see if they really mean it and specifically what evidence would they accept. Sometimes people will will say that they will accept evidence, but they will construct the standards to such a high degree that they're intentionally walling themselves off to protect their belief. But no, in this case with Denzel, it seemed like, no, he was really basing it on his Christian worldview. So at that point in the conversation, I, I would drop the porn thing completely, and I would go to why he thinks his God is real and how he could be so sure. This reminds me of conversation I had with uh, Kent Hovind on, on the yes. podcast. Yes. I'm glad you was, brought that up. It was yeah. by your recommendation, and just so anyone knows, if I'm about to debate you, I call Anthony Magnabosco first. So, <laughs> so be be careful, folks. But anyway, it was by your recommendation. I asked him if evolution could be proven to you to be true. Would that challenge your belief in the Bible? And we went through so many stages of having to explain this is just a hypothetical question. Yeah. And yeah. he had to keep rephrasing each thing. Well, what do you mean by evolution? Well, what do you mean by true? Well, what do you mean by that? And I want to say I went through about six different cycles where I finally he was said, "So cautious." Yes, yes. And they, they, that's I think that's the power of thinking at, in abstract. Is it, as much as people will get defensive about it about a belief that they're actually not. I this is my opinion. Maybe I could be wrong, but I don't think they're as confident in it as they project. I think that they're actually very, very intimidated by any questions about it. Because if, if you really believe something, you don't get that defensive. You go, yeah, come at me, bro, whatever. You know? <laughs> Good point. And I think yeah, that possibly. Maybe, yeah. But I, I think deep down they're, they're actually very scared that you're going to, to, to affect their belief. Or maybe, you know, especially someone like Kent's personality, perhaps. It, he's just worried that I'm going to get him in some little audio clip where I trip him up and then, and then play that yeah. clip over and over. Yeah, but, that's true. And yet he did respond to you finally. He finally went along with your scenario and answered it. And I think he said, yeah, if if evolution I, – I thought I was a little surprised that he, he uh, agreed to saying if evolution can be shown to be true, 
then it would definitely affect his faith. It would it would affect his yes. belief. I think is what he said. First, he said it would it would definitely challenge his uh, belief in the Bible or whether or not the Bible's true. And then I took it a step further and said, uh, would that challenge your your belief in God? Or I think I said it back to him. Are you saying it would challenge your belief in God? And he, and he confirmed yes. Mm-hmm. And that which blew sometimes my you'll mind. get it, that does throw some people that are like, oh, I wasn't expecting him to agree to that. What the next question I think should be is, okay. Great. I appreciate your honesty. Uh, have you ever thought about what evidence you would accept? What would you accept to change your mind? See, if, if, now I feel like we're role playing. I'm, I'm going to play Kent here. But Anthony, uh, the, the the evidence that I would accept, would, and just to save time, because he he would then say, "Well, I want to see you have a lung of a bird and the lung of a human inside your body at the same time." That's, you know? a, that's a very good point. Somebody <laughs> make just like with Denzel. Somebody may construct a very high standard of what they would accept. And then you need to start getting into, well, what constitutes sufficient evidence? Is there any reason why you, you seem to be setting a very high bar for, uh, for a standard to disprove your belief, but you seem to have a lower bar with regards to what you'll accept? You can start discussing if they're making exceptions uh, to protect their belief. Whoa. That is such yeah, a there's, great there's point. Yeah, there's a lot of – the conversation's not dead when somebody says, oh, yeah, I'd change my mind if I saw evidence. More than likely, they probably won't. And uh, or or they'll find ways to to set the standards so high for the evidence that would change their mind that it becomes suspicious that that they really are open to it. I run into that all the time. That's a great. So so the next question, then, if I'm reiterating this properly, the, the next question is, do you have the same level of evidence, the same standard for what causes you to believe this thing as you do for what would cause you to disbelieve it? That's a good one. Or, or more specifically, uh, you're very quick to explain what you accept to be confident that evolution is not true. Can you give me a similar number of examples that would show that that you would accept to show that your belief is not true? And it's interesting how people have a very difficult time of explaining what they would accept to defeat their position. And that's where I would, that's where I would go next with him. But what about where? And this is one I get a lot where I'll say, okay, so what would what would change your mind that Russia had influence on Trump, for example, okay? And the response is, well, if things weren't the way they are, you know what I mean? That that response of or <laughs> Some, something really vague, right? Like like if okay. well, not just vague, but more or less. Okay, so why do you why do you believe that um, Hillary has like a secret pizza store that that molests children? For example, okay, we'll we'll just use that one. And they say, well, I believe it because um, I I had heard about how he had pictures on the wall of kids right at, at this pizza place. Okay, that's a good. Can we just stop and, there because that's good. Okay, so a good question would be if you were to discover another article that contradicted that claim, would you be equally open to accepting it? And if they say no, then you need to discuss why they're making why they're holding a, a, these articles to different standards. Perhaps it's the source. Perhaps it's the friend that happened to refer it to them or or something else going on. In addition to seeing the story, they happened to catch a news article about something completely different that prepared them for being more open to accepting the initial claim. So what you're basically discussing is the methodology that they're using to conclude that these things are true. It's not so much getting into the nitty gritty and providing people with evidence or providing Kent with information to show that the earth is really old don't waste your time go where they take you see what they're open to see what they'll accept 
if Kent were to specifically say, well, if it could be adequately explained to my satisfaction how a hat can become fossilized or at least appear to be fossilized and give me the impression that the Earth is only 6,000 years old, yeah, I might be open to that. Then at that point, you need that, that if, if he's sure, if he's certain that he, he would accept that, go that way and work with him to give him the evidence. Uh, but you need to make sure that he would hold himself to that standard and lower his confidence. Like I would get buy-in. I would say, okay, if you were to see that, how far of a drop in your confidence are we talking about here? Would you drop from a from a 100% certainty to a 99 or would this bring you down to a five? So talk about the evidence, talk about what it would take to change their mind and talk about the impact that the evidence would have on the belief before you even spend any time throwing stuff at them. What about the the rebuttal where, okay, back to the, the Hillary pizza thing, for example, when you say, okay, the reason you believe this is because of the, you've been told that there are pictures of kids on the wall, for example. So it's a, it's a pedophile, a secret pedophile organization or something. Mm -hmm. What would change your mind about that? And they respond, well, if there wasn't pictures of kids on the wall, that would change my mind. So, so now they're taking something that they kind of feel like they've already established and they're using that thing that they established. When you walk into an establishment and you see pictures of kids on the wall, do you immediately think that it's it's a pedophile ring? Like, what is your criteria? How many pictures on the wall does it take for you to be confident that it's a pedophile ring? Is it five? Is it ten? What if there's a mixture of pictures? What if you walk into a daycare center and there's pictures of kids on the wall? Are you equally as suspicious? Fascinating. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It, at every step of the way, my initial urge to discredit the point, the last point they made, that's actually not, that's what's the ineffective part. Because what you're doing is you're, you're resisting that initial urge. And since you've been doing this so long, it's probably natural for you at this mm -hmm, point, but mm -hmm. it's, it sounds so unnatural to the rest of us. You're resisting that initial urge to say, you're wrong about that. No, you're wrong about that. No, you're wrong about that. You're just skipping yeah. through it and you're saying, why do you think that thing? Yes. Okay. So yes, exactly. So I think you have to say, okay, I'm going to accept what this person is telling me is potentially true, but I'm going to question them. So whenever I hear something as ridiculous as it sounds... I'm going to entertain the idea, the possibility that it's true. Once you do that, it's a lot easier to start forming questions to verify that they used a reliable method to conclude that it's true. And I'm, I'm just in the process now of, of writing a, I've, I've written it. There's a blog post on how to remain calm and stay on track when you're using street epistemology because it's so hard. One of the biggest barriers to doing street epistemology is our own impatience with credulity. Hmm. And, and coming to grips with it and giving people the benefit of the doubt helps them. It helps you form more better questions, and it helps you challenge the beliefs that they hold. And that's really the big goal here is to challenge the, the conclusions that people have arrived at. And our own anger, our own biases are huge roadblocks that can get in the way of a, of a great SE talk. But they're things that we have the ability to control. It's one of the few – it's one of the few – variables in a conversation that you do have some control over and if you can come to grips with it you can really succeed at this method i think i don't know if you've ever been in the manger hotel downtown yeah yeah so supposedly there's a there's a ghost down mm. there mm -hmm. went there with a couple <laughs> hold on i've got to stop it for this for this video and i know that you're just just to, to clarify i know your point in these videos is not to mock the person in any way you're actually trying to discuss the idea of it 
I bring this up because this is so typical of what anyone that has conversations with someone that believes something strongly based on bad evidence, they see this persona, they see this uh, body language. And body language, I'm sure, is a very important part of SE, but this guy... He's just, he's got his arms crossed and he, he looks so confident, you know, cause he's just looking at you. I'm sure you're familiar with this haunted house. Come on, <laughs> you know, and it's just, oh, when I see that, I just, I, uh, I, I don't know how you keep a straight face through these things. Well, some of that is good to see because it kind of validates my efforts to make the person comfortable. I want him to feel comfortable oh, cool. in front of me and open and feeling that he can share these these deeply held beliefs with a t- with a complete stranger. So I kind of like to see when somebody expresses a certain degree of confidence because it tells me and I might be way off here, but I kind of get the impression that they're probably comfortable discussing the topic with me when I see that. What a different take. Once again, just like how we were talking about you resist that that initial urge to criticize the last point someone made and you go for why they believe that point to be true. In this same sense, here's a perfect, another example, which kind of has a similar theme where I see something and I say, look at this arrogance. This guy's yeah. acting so cocky and it, it puts a burr under my saddle. You know, as Anthony and I are both Texan, everybody. So that's, that's a common expression <laughs> where we come from. <laughs> but anyway, that, but you see that and you go, Oh, I appreciate that this person's being that honest with me that we can really get to the topic at hand without, you know. Yeah. Sneakiness. When when I have a confident, comfortable interlocutor and they're being honest, that you know, we're talking about all these all these barriers, all these variables that can get in the way of a good conversation. A dishonest, guarded interlocutor can be problematic. And I like it when people are confident and they're willing to discuss these things. So yeah, I see that as a positive. Okay, this is a play where we left off, but he the he was talking about a haunted hotel. Buddies, one time we're just like. Oh yeah, let's go to the Manger. It's it's haunted. It was one week night. We were we weren't doing anything. It's like okay, yeah. So we went down there and uh, I've I've heard that uh, ghosts can manipulate like space time in like small little pockets. And um, we were walking down this one hallway in the Manger, and it just felt like we were walking down the hallway for like a good 30, 45 minutes. But we were only there for like five minutes. Do you think that people, do you agree that there are some people that might go to the Manger Hotel and not have any conception that it might be haunted? Yeah. People that are from out of town and haven't heard of it, probably. Do you think that people who have heard that the hotel is haunted might have more or less experiences with ghosts than people who have never heard that it was haunted? Hmm. I mean, it could like it could be it could be either way. So like people that have heard it's haunted. I mean, I don't I don't really think that hearing that a place is haunted really like affects how many supernatural paranormal experiences you've had. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, if a person is aware of this idea of ghosts and might be under the impression that there are ghosts in a place, whether it's a hotel or a school or some sort of building. Are they possibly more primed to have an experience with a ghost than somebody who's never heard of the concept? Okay, so like, yeah, so what you're saying is they're they're more likely to believe that something that happens while they're there is a ghost. Yeah. Okay. 
yeah that that definitely that definitely is something like if i'd if i'd never heard that a place was haunted and i was walking through it and suddenly a door just opened or like a, a door shut or something i'd just be like oh it was just a cleaning lady just the wind you know whatever but if i knew that there was ghosts there then yeah i would be like yeah it was a ghost okay is it fair to say that you might look back on your life and conclude that these experiences that you had were not ghosts if you weren't already told about ghosts probably like I mean there's there's always a, a scientific explanation for everything so yeah like if I was if I had no knowledge of um, you know any of those places being haunted I would say yeah no there's no such thing as ghosts well thank you so very much for your time yeah of course he it's interesting how he mentioned the importance of scientific rigor and data but he seems so quick to conclude that there was some sort of spirit as the explanation for his experience and it seemed like he kind of came around on it that that yeah i guess if if i hadn't already been told about ghosts i might not be concluding that they these experiences were caused by ghosts and i didn't just tell him i i asked him questions and he was able to kind of come around and agree to that on his own in my experience whenever i ask someone a lot of questions that that help direct them uh, to questioning their beliefs they'll respond in, in a very similar way that he responded as soon as he said it i went oh, you know like oh my god that's what i hear that all the time is is they'll respond by going so you're saying blah 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 yeah it, it it's almost it's almost like what they're what they're thinking what they really want to say and this is putting my words in their mouth of course but what they really want to say is, I get that you're leading me this direction and I would not have listened to you otherwise. But now, since you're forcing me to think about what you really mean, I can honestly say I recognize that this is what you would be saying if you weren't asking questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I finally have dropped my filter that would have stopped you from getting a point across. If you would have just come out and said, ghosts are bullshit. Ghosts are bro. made up. Yeah. yeah, ghosts are made up. They're <laughs> they bullshit. Yeah, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have received it, but... Since you've, mm -hmm. you, you made me drop my filter, I think what you're trying to say is this, this, and this. Yeah, if you, can make, if you can help people be comfortable and explain what they believe and repeat it back and ask them a couple of questions, most of the time, people, they back off on their certainty. They back off on their confidence that something is true. And some people go out to find better reasons to hold a belief, and some people just lower their confidence and never raise it back up. The other thing that I liked in the last video before this one that we have played, you avoided talking about all this other stuff, and you went right to why do you think the way that you think, right? Whereas this one, you said, you're making this very bold claim and act, almost acting confident in a way like, of course you know what I'm talking about. You know, that kind of thing. So, so you saw that and said, let's talk about other people. And then once he said, he, he was comfortable acknowledging that other people would be reasonable to respond in a certain way, then you brought it back and said, okay, now let's talk about you. Do you follow the same law that you would apply to these other people? You know, forcing this intellectual honesty almost. So it's, it's neat that these two clips in contrast show when sometimes it's appropriate to avoid the world and go right to the heart of the matter. And then sometimes it's more appropriate to say, let's, let's look at this in a way that you would accept in an honest way by looking at everything else. And then can you apply that same honesty to yourself? Yeah. Usually these clips, the longer ones and even the shorter ones, they tend to have a takeaway. And I think in this one, it was that we all have biases that we all have these cognitive biases 
and maybe even a propensity to believe certain things. If if this happened in Ireland, would a person be more apt to think that it was a leprechaun as opposed to a ghost? Could also be a good question. I've asked that question for ghost claims. Um, so yeah, these are these are really interesting discussions, and and they usually end on very good terms too. Like Anthony, this guy Anthony uh, was not upset with me. I don't think about me challenging his ghost view. And I think he ended up walking away with a better understanding of, of his beliefs. So that's really what I love about this, this SE approach is that uh, it allows you to challenge people, but not be a dick about it. And you can still be friends usually after the fact. You know, it's funny you bring that up. That is actually a question I wanted to ask you in particular. I had it written down here. Do you find just on a personal note, do you find that you have a lot of friends that you've developed that believe things differently than you do, but because, you know, the, the friendship was actually initiated through some form of SE. Mm, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't call them friendships, but maybe associations. So I see a lot of these individuals on the trail again and again and again. And it's really interesting. Very often people will wave at me or smile, or if I'm not talking to somebody, they will chat with me a little bit before going on their hike and maybe we pick up the conversation and, and have a second talk about ghosts or something like that. But it's almost like we have sort of an appreciation for our differences. And it seems like they've enjoyed the talk and many of them are eager to pick it up. So, yeah, maybe there's just more of a respect for our, our differences might might be the answer there. You know what it uh, is? I, I, I bet is you but, but I bet I know what it is. You've been through something together in the same way that you could have. Maybe just a, a you know a cab ride with some you know, complete uh, stranger might, there might be something to that like i think that we do have these special it's like a special moment mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i don't upload every video and, and a lot of the ones that i that i don't upload are still just as profound as the ones that i do and the conversations stick with people i'll, I'll run to people two years later and they they'll spot me and they seem to remember exactly what we talked about these conversations tend to resonate and stay with people here's another thing and i get i get an odd satisfaction from this and i wonder if you do as well is whenever you're talking to someone and they get really excited about their belief and this one might not be you know uh, might not apply to like a ghost scenario like the last one we were discussing but whenever you're talking to someone uh, i get this with a lot of fundamental christians uh, and especially if they come from more of an evangelical background you know they finally recognize that they have someone that will listen instead of just argue back and forth or it's either i agree with you and we have nothing to talk about because we agree we go to the same church or I disagree with you and we just argue. But they they run into someone that says, I'm not going to interrupt you. I'm going to listen to you. And they feel so free and they just they really get into it. And you see like almost like a passion for what they believe in. And I I love it. I really love it. They'll get off and they'll be like, oh, sorry, I'm, I was preaching at you for a minute. And I'm just smiling. I'm like, no, go ahead, mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. I love seeing somebody talk about something that they really care about. I get that a lot where people they say that they really enjoyed the talk and it was so nice to have somebody just listen to them and not project any condemnation or any ridicule that it was just so nice to be able to speak freely and and have somebody question what they're saying and try to understand them better that's that's one of the great things about these questions is that you have to pay very close attention to formulate a good question and the act of paying attention helps people feel more comfortable. They'll disclose more information to you, and you can really form a great question if you pay attention. And and people love being listened to, and and they love talking about about these beliefs. They're very tied to a person's identity. Many of these beliefs, and it's kind of rare these days when somebody 
is asked a question and they take 30 seconds to think about it and you're not stepping on that silence. There was a little bit of a pause there in, in one of those talks. I think it was maybe with Anthony with a ghost. But the, when you can give somebody a really long pause and give them time to think about the answer yes. that they're that they're whipping up in their mind, uh, people people tend to really like that. That's that's rare. You don't usually see that. We step on those pauses all the time. Awesome. Yes, I, I was wanting to get to the pause again uh, because we had talked about it last time you were on the show, and it's so true. It's like in that moment, I, I love how you say that. Don't step on it because in that moment, that's the gears are finally turning. Just mm-hmm. shut up and let it work. Like you already it's, did your job. Just be quiet. Let them think for a second. That's so true. Yeah. It's yeah. tough though when you have two people or more. I was, I was interviewing a Mormon couple more than a month ago and it was unfortunate because I know if, if I had had a one on one with either of them, the discussion would have been far more productive. But what would happen is I would ask the, the, the woman, uh, a good question. And she was thinking about it like a spider moment, looking up, you know, at, at, a, at the ceiling. Mm-hmm. It was outdoors, but she was looking up at the sky, thinking. And her husband took that as an opportunity for him to give an answer or ask for clarification. And it just stepped all over her thinking. And, and she was even getting frustrated with him, like, hold on a second. I'm thinking about the answer. Uh, it's tougher when you have more than one person uh, to have those pauses. There have been times where I think, oh, I'm never doing a, a dual interview again. This has to just be a one on one thing. But I think that there are some advantages to doing the dual or more approach too. But yeah, stepping on this on those pauses is very common when you're interviewing more than one person. I would think especially if it was a spouse too, because that group psychology effect that happens regardless of the relationship. If two people believe the same thing, they're going to support each other. But especially in like a uh, if they're in a close relationship scenario, then they almost I would think would feel it's their responsibility to do for that person what they would do for themselves if, if they could. So whenever you, you ask me a challenging question, for example, my mind doesn't want to change. So I am almost being defensive in a way of protecting my beliefs. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you if you catch me in a moment where I start to change my beliefs, I am kind of delaying that feeling of cognitive dissonance for a moment, just enough to think about it. But if I've got somebody next to me that also thinks the same thing, then they're going to almost feel probably on a, a subconscious level, perhaps, so they might not be aware of it, rather, but that they're going to say, oh, I need to help them out and jump in before I say, oh, that might be true. And if that partner offers an answer, the person who is going to be spending 30 seconds thinking about it is probably going to stop thinking about mm-hmm. it. And now they're considering the answer that their partner gave rather than the answer that they would have gave. Okay. So, Anthony, I wanted to ask you something. And this is this is a belief that I've held on to for a long time. I think psychedelics or or any kind of mind-altering drugs affect how we feel about our own reality in the sense of not not just that you know if you're if you're on drugs then obviously you're experiencing reality differently i don't i don't mean in that sense i mean more like if i have experienced drugs that have altered my reality in the past then i would be more open to changing my mind about some some challenge that you might bring to me through SE or, or any kind of any kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I say that to kind of ask, do you think that someone that might have had a mind altering effect in the past, that they might be more open to changing their mind now? That's a good question. Well, I've never taken any mind altering drugs. I mean, I'd like, like to give it a try, but I haven't other than perhaps alcohol. Um, so I don't really know what that experience is like. I'm wondering, though, maybe 
if a person who's more open to taking drugs might be more open to looking at their beliefs. So there, there might be more of a correlation there as opposed to because a person took those things, those drugs, that later on they're more open to a conversation. I, it's probably more of a personality trait than anything else, but I, yeah, I don't know. Like it's already there. It's already there. It may there just be there. It may just be... be there. Like, yeah. Um, a person who may be more open to taking a psychedelic might be more open to agreeing to have a talk with a person on camera who's a stranger in the woods. And that person then might have more of a tendency to be more open to, to thinking about their beliefs. So, yeah, there might be some. Did you just SE me? Right on my own damn show. I don't just, know, did we? But, but yeah, but I've always thought that, but that's a good point. This is really one of the reasons why I try to caution people not to draw too many conclusions from my videos or others, because we may be selecting a certain type of individual, you know, a person that's willing to participate in this conversation might be more, uh, I hate to use the word susceptible. Oh, wow. No, you're more, right. Open-minded, maybe. Or open-minded, possibly. And that's not to say that everyone I run into is open-minded. Uh, I have my fair share of people who are very closed. But uh, but yeah, perhaps just the way that we're going about trying to engage in these conversations and record them and show examples might be uh, including some sort of bias in them. Speaking of, of that exactly, of whether or not they're open-minded, there was this one girl you were talking to named Clara. My favorite part is, and it, the listener won't get this unless they follow the links in the show notes. I'll, I'll put a link there so you guys can watch these videos yourself. But she has a water bottle and Anthony just snatches it, <laughs> just takes it from her to make a point. Could you be holding a belief that makes you happy, but might not be really true? You're like, it's true to yourself. And that's all that's really important. Do you really live that way? Yeah. Do you? I mean, as long as I feel it's true, like why? <laughs> Ah, I'm sorry. I can't. I just, I, I'm not like you, man. I can't just hold it back. It drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> What's bothering you about it? You, that that whole thing. Well, I got my truth and you got your truth. Like, oh, that it, no, essentially dude, is just like it, the base of everything that pisses me off about. It's infuriating. But listen, we're not going to help anybody if we jump down their throats. We need to hear what they mean by it and let them think it through. Because how else are are we going to break through? Me just shaking her and saying snap out of it uh this is not an issue of of uh this is not an issue of choice or opinion what's what's a fact is a fact and what's true is true you have to walk people through it you have to ask questions and help them discover it on their own my response to that would immediately be to ask them if holding that way of thinking is an honest way of dealing with the world and that's, you that's kind of you kind of get to that, but you don't you don't come at it that direct. And I think I, think I say that something that like, would... "Do you really live that way?" No, oh, yeah, you did. Yeah, you're you're right. That's mm -hmm. oh, that's yeah. But that's a much. I think that's a better way of going about it than just coming right out like that's a logical fallacy. And I should say that the what you're about to play the rest of this, uh, it's it's one way of approaching this challenge of subjective truth, this relativistic view. Uh, there are a couple of other, of other ideas that I have on the subject, and I wrote a blog post on it, but this is probably one of the most direct ways to help people break through. Do you really live that way? Yeah. Do you? I mean, as long as I feel it's true, like, why, why should I believe, you know, all, I don't know, why shouldn't I find my truth and what I believe and that make me happy? 
Why shouldn't everyone do that? You know, I'm really thirsty right now, and you're actually holding my water bottle. <laughs> Alright, he just took her water bottle. Yeah. That's true for me. Okay. Doesn't that make, makes you happy. Doesn't make just, it. Doesn't you ma- stole my water bottle, so. <laughs> I hey, stole it? That, I mean, it. that is. took it from. It wasn't yours, it was mine. But that's if, like. If it was true for me true. that it was actually mine. Would it make it well, true? You're just probably just a little. That would make you maybe a little off. <laughs> yeah, it'd make you a little off. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty direct way of trying to break through this idea that that uh, what you prefer to believe makes it true, and it's just not a. It's just not. Uh, it, well, it's a very dangerous mindset. And while we were laughing there, this is a really big problem. This whole idea of relativism and subjective truth. And in fact, I think it's one of these things that you have to address before you even move on to a belief. It makes no sense to have a conversation with Clara about why she also thinks that a God is real. If she thinks everyone who believes in any type of God or believes that there is no God is true, like that is a true belief, regardless of their view on it. So you have to address this idea of relativism first before you move on. It's a really big hurdle. Yeah, I wanted to pick your brain about something. It was Jeff Sessions that, and in fact, this was uh, um, this was my first episode. I was trying to think what what should I start with, and my first it was the one where I, I had interviewed Aaron Rob. I played some uh, clips of Jeff Sessions talking about how relativism is such a dangerous thing. My response to the the typical believer talking about relativism, if if they're kind of like the divine command theory sort of believer where they say we get we get our truth from god we get logic from god we get right from wrong from god and if you don't believe in god then you just believe in relativism they, they make up this false dichotomy between them and everyone else kind of thing and i've always felt like and and tell me if you if you would agree that if you're getting your beliefs from a deity or, or you're you're saying that all creation is from this deity or all truth comes from this deity or right and wrong and morality itself comes from this deity, then isn't that a form of relativism in itself? Because that would mean that right and wrong is arbitrary based on one person's subjective opinions, which would be the deity. You know, mm-hmm. so to mm-hmm. me, it's almost like saying, let's say I'm, I'm the Christian and you, Anthony, are the atheist. And I'm saying, look, you are getting your truth from subjectivism. And I'm getting my truth from God. But the what I'm really admitting to is I'm also getting my truth from subjectivism. God's the subject rather than saying I'm the subject. I think so. Yeah, this is the one thing that I think very fundamental religious people and atheists have in common. Most atheists, I think, view truth as objective. And you have your fundamentalists that also view it as objective. So if you've been, if you've been ever looking for a common ground between the two, to get to get a conversation started, you probably agree that truth is objective. Now, where that objective truth comes from, I think we we our our views on that differ wildly. I've had people say truth comes from Jesus, and and then I'll just I think my, I might just ask something like, um, you believe that truth is coming from a belief that a person is giving it. Um, so yeah, the source of this truth, I don't I don't know. Uh, where where we're differing on that like i think yes maybe there is some subjective quality to it so that a person says well yeah it's my god that's giving it and somebody says no it's my god that's giving it um i don't know where it originates but it does seem like truth is objective and it is one of those things that we have in common 
Why, Gordon, do you believe that a God even exists? Because I was brought up a Christian. I was brought up to believe that. I mean... How long have you had the belief? Since I was uh, able to think. <laughs> and it gets stronger as I grow older. Interesting. Just to pause real quick. Uh, in this video... This man is a elderly man named Gordon, kind of grandpa looking guy, you know, like cool brim hat, shades, button up shirt. Mm -hmm. You just want to give him a hug. He's rocking back and forth while you're talking to him. What does that tell you right away? Well, I think he was a little uncomfortable. And the way that we positioned ourselves for this conversation, I for some, I don't normally do this, but he's backed up against some trees. He really can't go anywhere. So I, I've boxed him in. Mm. And uh, this was not intentional. It just happened. Uh, so that is probably one reason. Maybe he's feeling a little bit trapped. I have a camera there. I'm asking him something that he's he's never been asked probably before. Uh, so I think he's a little bit taken aback. And also, it may not become apparent through this clip, but he's a little hard of hearing. So he might be struggling to understand what I'm saying. And I'm talking a little bit louder uh, for that very reason. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. Usually when somebody's rocking back and forth, they're a little agitated, they're uncomfortable. Hmm. Are there are there other body languages that just come to mind right now that you would say if we identify these sorts of things, not to read into uh, them too much, but maybe they might indicate this or that? That would be my caution. Don't don't read too much into these things. Hmm. Okay. But uh, a neck touch is usually in, an indication that a person is uh, – they're they're protecting themselves. Uh, the neck is a very vulnerable area, apparently. And if somebody tux, touches their neck, it could be a sign that that you've really you've hit a a very sensitive point in the conversation. If the, if they start squeezing their nipple, that's a good reason to just stop the conversation right there, though, right? That's where you ask for their <laughs> number at that point. Yeah, this this se is turning me on. You know? <laughs> Yesterday, I ran into a family that had a little four month old baby. And they identify themselves as Christians, but they could have easily been Hindus or Muslims or pagans. It doesn't matter. Well, not pagans, but pagans are non-believers. But it doesn't matter what what religion you come from or what your ethnicity is, as long as you believe in a supreme being, you know, whether you call them Allah or God or Nehu or whatever, as long as you believe in the same being, it doesn't matter. Let's say that little girl is raised to believe that there's no God. Well, I feel sorry for her. Would she be just as correct in her belief as you being raised with your belief? Just as correct? No. I mean... Why not? Because this was all created for us, for by God, and <clears throat> we look for eternal life. And that comes through salvation. And if you don't believe in God, then you can't have salvation. Are you saying that if a child is raised to believe in a God, they're justified in having the belief? But if a child is raised to believe in no gods, they're not justified? A young child has no, has no concept of what's right or wrong at, at that point. They believe only what they're told. And so what they, were, what they are taught in the first five years of life will probably be with them for the rest of their life, Boom. which is unfortunate. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what a revelation at the end. 
I love that one because he's basically just outlining the dangers of indoctrination without really coming out and saying it. And I don't know if it even dawned on him at that moment that he was describing more than likely his own upbringing and the the reason why he's walking around at 75 years old or however old he is with that belief is probably because he was taught it. And there were a couple of points in the conversation where he mentions things that would be raw meat to an atheist that it would be so hard to ignore. I don't know if you caught it or not. I can go over him if you want me to. Uh, yeah, please do. But I'm guessing we're thinking of the same ones. He talks about pagans, right? And he says that pagans are non-believers. Or he says, if that little girl was raised to not believe in a God, I'd feel sorry for yeah, her. You just, you just, you didn't you, take the bait. You want to jump in and be like, no, no, no. I have two kids. They're the most wonderful kids ever. And I, I didn't teach them about a God. Uh, you want to just explain that, no, you can have a meaningful life without a God, but you have to set aside those those tendencies to want to correct people and stay focused on how they're so sure that what they believe is true. Mm. Where where I totally agree with you, not taking the bait there was very advantageous, but I find sometimes it's really effective if I force them to talk about me instead of me talking about them where they'll get defensive. Of course, I'm talking about me like, okay, so you're saying that I should go to hell. Well, I mean, the Bible says that. Okay, so what is it that I would need to do? And they, they go through the Romans road, more or less. You know what I mean? Okay, so if I accept Christ, my personal Savior, this will happen. How would I believe that? Since I've already, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I already have this information, yet I still reject it. So what would I need to do to avoid rejecting it? Well, you have to believe. Okay, so is belief something that I can make myself do? Can I make myself believe this or that? And, like, keep walking them through them talking about me and i found that what that leads me the opportunity to do is point out how judgmental they are because by the time you get to about the fifth or sixth okay so if i don't believe does that mean that i'm a bad person but yeah you just want to live in your sin oh well i don't feel that way you know and, and you kind of direct them to where you get to a point where you go as much as you say you shouldn't judge people you're sounding very judgmental here or it gives you the opportunity to say if I did follow these sorts of things, or if I really did try to do this, but it still isn't working the way that you say it should work for me, doesn't that show that maybe maybe your ideas are wrong? Or maybe the Bible isn't right about its implication that we can just believe whatever we want. And I, I feel like having them direct everything right at me, like as if I can I can take all of this, but it's gonna it's gonna present a lot of holes in your argument. Like sometimes that's effective. Have you ever you ever gone that route? I think I have. What I prefer to do these days, though, is to see if they have a friend that doesn't believe. And then we start talking about their oh, that's friend even better. or yeah. some, some hypothetical. Rather than putting it on me and making me the bad guy, like I, I try to present myself as a neutral observer in this dialogue. And yeah, so you said that it was a God that helped you get through that difficult time. Do you do you have any friends that don't believe in any gods? Well, yeah. And if they were to encounter a difficult time, how do you think that they would manage? So we actually start talking about kind of like what you're doing, but rather than putting the focus on yourself, you're putting it on maybe a friend that they're going to see next week. And then they start asking. It's kind of a reminder also when they run into that person about the conversation. The thing that I liked about this clip with Gordon, I just wanted to weigh in really quickly, is that by not taking the bait and staying focused on questioning, it became evident that he had a double standard. It's okay to be taught something at an early age as long as you're being taught that a God exists. But if you're being taught that 
that a God doesn't exist, well, then that's bad. And that, that was really the big takeaway, I think, from this conversation was uh, was the double standard that he had created. I, just, I think I just kind of figured you out, Anthony. Right when you said that person might run in to their friend later and be reminded about this, you actually care about these people. You know, like you, yeah. you, you're not just wanting to win the argument or wanting to just change their mind because you're wanting to promote your own personal beliefs. You actually care about these people. You, you, it, it's obvious. These are people who are in my community. Uh, I, I, I get all these messages from all the time from people wanting to debate me or use use street epistemology on me. I would much rather prefer to just have SE conversations on the people who are in my community. The woman who literally cuts my son's hair is somebody who I ran into on the trail. She's wielding scissors in front of my kid's head, mm. okay? I, like, th- this is a beneficial thing, and I do care about these people, and I want to gently challenge their views, and I also want to impart this 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 approach of SE so that they start using it on their own. And yes, I try to come up with questions that will resonate and stay with a person. So yes, when they, when they run into their friend, and that was the friend that they were envisioning in my hypothetical, that they might be reminded of the conversation. I, I want these conversations to stick with people. I want these questions to stick. And I try to come up with all different ways to make that happen, to, to, so that it's not just a one-off that was five, 10 minutes long and they never think of it again. I want these these questions and that conversation to stay with them. For anyone that would say that they, they care as well uh, and wants to learn more about this, could you tell them how they could find out more and maybe even contact you? Sure. The best way to learn about street epistemology is to go to streetepistemology.com. You'll find a link to all the different groups that are out there, all different channels where people are uploading examples. There are a tremendous amount of resources, and there's even an app. If you want to reach out to me directly, I'm accessible. If you have any criticisms or suggestions, message me on Twitter or Facebook. My Twitter is Magna Bosco, my last name. And I usually respond within 24 hours to pretty much every inquiry. Listen to the Right to Reason podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can watch us on YouTube at the Right to Reason YouTube channel. Support us at patreon.com forward slash right and learn more at the right to reason.com. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.